Hi there, Rachel here. If you're listening to this episode in May of 2024, I have some big news. After selling out during the holiday season, my Flex of Gold journal is available for pre-order right now and will be shipping to your home by the end of June. To celebrate, we're running an amazing pre-order sale for Mother's Day. Purchase the journal before May 13th and you'll get $10 off every journal. This is our best price of the year, even better than Black Friday, so it's the perfect time to stock up for gifts for family and friends. This three-year journal helps mothers to notice, savor, and write down the fleeting golden moments that they experience with their children each day. So go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to reserve your copy, and you'll also see our brand new cover colors, as well as our new cover option, which is a wipeable vegan leather. So again, go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to pre-order your journal, and from now until Mother's Day 2024, they'll be marked down by $10 each. I can't wait for you to experience the magic of this beautiful gratitude journal for mothers. Over the past few weeks, you've heard me share about some awesome mom-run companies that were the sponsors of my Declutter Your Motherhood workshop in Utah. And today you'll hear about our fifth and final sponsor. Jill Johnson of J Coterie Quilts was the title sponsor for the workshop, and she made every single attendee one of her incredibly gorgeous and sturdy makeup bags. I have one of these quilted zipper bags in my purse to hold all of those little mom odds and ends, such as pens, hand sanitizer, and band-aids, and I also use a couple of them when I travel, one for my makeup and one for jewelry. These little makeup bags are beautiful and so functional, a great gift for any woman. Jill also does edge-to-edge quilting with her Gamel long-arm machine so she can help you finish off your heirloom quilts. And she has her own line of custom baby quilts that are modern, chic, and seriously, just so beautiful. (laughs) She has such a great eye for delicious colors and modern patterns. And if you have a special baby in your life, you just might need a custom J Coterie creation. You can see Jill's work at jcoterie.com. And if you use the code 3 and 30 you can get 20% off your order through the end of June. That's 20% off with the code 3 and 30 and I will put the link to her website in the show notes. Next week on the podcast, I'm going to be sharing how you could win a J Coterie makeup bag stuffed full of all the other gifts from the workshop. So you'll be getting the same gift bag that my workshop attendees received. It's not going to be hard to enter, and it's actually something that will help me a lot with the podcast. So stay tuned for that information next week. Today on the podcast, we have episode 83. Are kids today harder than they were in the past? Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. I'm going to start today's podcast by reading all of you a passage, and I want you to guess where it comes from. Does it come from a book or does it come from my personal journal? (laughs) Listen and decide what you think. As a child, I was a typical good girl, eager to excel in school and please adults, often found reading quietly in my bedroom. My two kids are entirely different creatures. Natural extroverts, they burst into a room with the barely contained energy of a pair of puppy dogs. I could understand them being wiggly at mealtimes when they were two or three. But even at age eight or nine, they'd sit still at dinner for just a few minutes before jumping out of their seats to play with our dog or come to give me a hug. 
When my kids' defiance first cropped up, I used timeouts, counting to three, sticker charts, and whatever methods I could find in the parenting books in a vain attempt to get them to do what I wanted. One technique might extinguish bad behavior for a few weeks, but before long, a fresh problem would crop up. At one point, I endured a stretch when every single day ended with me or a child in tears over bedtime. So what do you think? Is that from my journal or is it from a book? It's from a book, a really fascinating and important book that we're going to be talking about on the show today, but it might as well have been from my journal, right? Any of you who have listened to this podcast for very long know that I have two very spirited kids who sometimes act like puppy dogs and won't stay seated at dinner that are hard to control and discipline. So it could be from my journal and possibly from your journal as well. <laughs> if you relate to this scenario, you're not alone. In fact, the seeming epidemic of strong-willed kids with difficult behavior is the reason that Katherine Reynolds Lewis embarked on writing her book, which is titled The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever and What to Do About It. In that same passage that I just read, she continues... As a journalist with two decades experience gathering facts and analyzing problems, I burned to understand why so many parents were having the same difficulties. I wondered why parenting seems so much harder nowadays, even though parents of my generation devote more time and energy to our children than at any point in modern history, according to time use researchers. So Katherine Reynolds Lewis is here with us today to tell us what conclusions she found after years of detailed research. And by way of introduction, she's a graduate from Harvard, an award-winning journalist who writes for publications such as The Atlantic, Fortune, USA Today, and The Washington Post. She's a certified parent educator, and perhaps most importantly, she has lived what she researches by being a mother to her three strong, smart, and spirited daughters. So Catherine, welcome to 3 and 30. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's great to be here with you, and I love that you opened with that uh, real moment of epiphany for me. <laughs> you know, when I read that, I literally wrote in the margins with, you know, in a pen in the book, I wrote, is she describing my kids? It was so, un <laughs> it was so uncanny to me because my husband and I every night are like, why can't they just sit in their seats at dinner? Like, it's just so frustrating. So I'm so excited to interview you today and get some insight into why our kids struggle to behave and what I loved about your book is it's really not your typical parenting book. There's so much research and science in it. And I'm, I'm kind of an intellectual geek myself. And so I was getting into reading all the studies. And um, it was just fascinating to me that this is not just based on anecdotal evidence or your personal experience. It's really backed by science. So before we started, I did just want you to give the listeners kind of tell them how this book came to be. Oh, thank you so much for the question. And truly, it started with that personal journey of how do I get my kids to do what I want when my youngest was three and she's now 12. So that tells you sort of how long I've been asking this question. But the specific work on the book began in 2012 when I was working on a story about discipline at school versus discipline at home and what do you do when the school uses different methods than you do. And that just led to this whole world of fascinating research on our children today and what is making them so oppositional and why the rates of anxiety, depression, ADHD, 
substance addiction, self-harm, suicide are so high. All of these things that I mentioned are under this broad umbrella of self-regulation. These are kids who are really having trouble managing their behavior, their emotions, or their thoughts. And so what I uncovered was this epidemic of dysregulation of a children who can't manage themselves. And, and I think we do see it most starkly in the rise in the suicide rate, which has actually doubled for children 10 to 14 in the last decade. Mm. And it's gone up 41% for teenagers 15 to 19. So that when I started uncovering this research, along with a study by the National Institutes of Health, that one in two children by 18 will have a mood or behavioral disorder, Mm -hmm. So anxiety, depression, ADHD, you know, I realized that it wasn't just me, <laughs> you know, it wasn't just my kids who were more chaotic. It was really this whole generation. And there's a couple reasons that we'll get to later. Yeah. And I have to say that that statistic that one in two children will develop a behavioral or mood disorder or a substance abuse problem by 18. When I read that again, pen writing in the margin, I wrote in all caps, what with yeah. like five question marks. I mean, it's just stunning to think. And that's, um, that's, it was a sweeping study. You said, right. It's not like, cause people might argue that was just a really small right, um, right. survey no. group or yeah. more than 10,000 children, a representative sample across the U S and the national institutes of health. I mean, there is no more authoritative research body than the NIH. Um, and even if you, you know, you say, oh, well, maybe it was high or low, like even if it was 45% was maybe within the margin of error or 60%, like those are still very, very high numbers. So as parents, our role shouldn't be to say, oh my gosh, my kid is broken. They can't do what they're supposed to, but to say, well, this is childhood. Childhood is the process of coming to understand yourself, your role in the, the family and the world, and how you're going to contribute and what you need to manage your behavior and thoughts and emotions. Yes. So it sounds like from all of your research that it's not in our imaginations that kids are harder today. They are harder today. That's what you found. Right. I think that all of us look around and we wonder that when we see kids misbehaving. But I think our natural instinct is to ask, is this our fault? Is this our fault as the parents? Do we just not know how to parent? And that's why kids are harder. And I definitely think that Older generations may think that when they look at the children of today, they think, well, their parents don't know how to manage them. It must be their fault because my kids weren't that hard when they were young. Um, so <laughs> the question is, is this our fault? So like based on all the research that you've done, why are kids harder today? Right. No, it's the natural go-to. And I think uh, when I was on book tour, and I'm still speaking about this book around the country, a lot of times people come up and especially if they're that grandparent age, they're like, oh, it's the parents. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge, and we are just parenting in this culture of fear and blame and judgment that mm. is so unhealthy for us and also for our kids. So, you know, I, I like to say, yes, of course, there are things that we parents are doing, there are choices that we're making that are that are helping to contribute to this crisis, but we're making those choices in a context of competitive parenting, of fear about can our kids compete? Are they going to be able to do well in school and get into a good college and have a good career? So all of that fear combines to, you know, encourage us to make bad choices for our kids. Mm. And I'm hoping with this book to just reassure parents that 
it's actually better for your kids if you do some things that are countercultural. And I'll just share up front the three reasons that I'm going to go through um, that kids today have the less ability to self-regulate and that if we reverse these or sort of set limits that we're going to help our kids develop that ability quicker and, and more easily. And so number one is that um, play has almost completely disappeared from childhood and that childhood childhood is when kids learn through play. So the fact that our kids aren't generally playing outdoors or in lightly supervised mixed age groups, that they're missing that chance to develop social and emotional skills. And um, number two is the growth of media and technology, which um, bombards all of us and demands our attention. And the third is that childhood has become about achievement and performance, that we're very focused on our kids' academics and their extracurriculars, and they're supposed to be achieved as opposed to really trying to focus on their character and what they contribute to their home and to their community and those very powerful things that give kids a deep sense of self-esteem. And in my book, I identify these factors while saying it could also be that there is some like plastic or hormone in all of our food that's in the environment that we haven't yet identified that's contributing to this crisis of self-regulation. But these three things we know help. Hmm. In, you know, in research, we find that they are connected to anxiety, depression, attention problems, substance use. And when you start to reverse them, you see kids getting better, a, a better grip on their social and emotional skills and being more um, stable and successful in that deep meaning of success. Okay. And I want to go into each of those three things in detail. And before we do that, I wanted to emphasize, so you're saying that um, the problem is that children don't know how to self-regulate for these three reasons, these three cultural, you know, environmental, right. modern reasons, they don't know how to self-regulate. Can you define that for us? What is self-regulation? Yeah. So self-regulation is really just that, being able to manage your behavior. So that includes frustration tolerance, impulse control, you know, when your kid's throwing something out of frustration or they're shoving their sibling or they're talking back to you, those all fall under that, you know, umbrella of behavior and those very micro skills we want our kids to learn. Their thoughts, so this is very connected to the rise in anxiety when our kids have fearful thoughts and they haven't had experience in the world to know how to manage those, that that really is challenging for them. And then emotions. And that's another piece that ties into a lot of the behavior we see that if our kids can't manage their emotions effectively, they explode or they melt down or they refuse to cooperate with us in the many ways that we need their cooperation during the day. So yeah, so self-regulation is the broad umbrella term for managing your thoughts, behavior, and emotions. And mm. as adults, sometimes we don't have all those skills. So oh, no. I found, you know, parenting to be this tremendous uh, self, you know, actualization opportunity where I've had to learn to manage my emotions better. So I'm not modeling for my kids dysfunctional ways of responding to anger or frustration or you know, setbacks. Yes. So they, children are losing the ability to self-regulate as well as, as parents, we know it's difficult to, to self-regulate. Yeah. And so as we're working on our own self-regulation and helping our kids develop self-regulation, we're going to have a lot more harmony and, um, you know, peace and good feelings in our homes. Right. And if we drop that idea that we all need to be perfect and never get upset and be this calm, you know, sort of June Cleaver mom, um, then we'll we'll be actually helping our kids to see that they, too, are imperfect and can learn and grow. 
Mm -hmm. And that when they make a mistake, then they, it's another form of self-regulation and impulse control to say, oh, I just made a mistake and I can apologize and I can make it right. Um, so if we are making mistakes as parents, we're modeling for them how to self-regulate in that way exactly. and make it right and go back. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, why don't you dive into each one of those three areas that you previously mentioned that are cultural? And as you said, we sort of need to fight against the, our, the culture of our day because these three areas are making it harder for our kids to learn the skills they need to self-regulate. So I would love it if you would go through each one of those three areas. Yes. So number one is the decline in unstructured play and outdoor time. So our kids are generally, and this was true of my kids when they were little too, they're supervised by an adult from the moment they wake up until the second they fall asleep. And so they're always within arm's reach of someone who's going to stop them from getting hurt and mediate their disagreements. And as a result, they don't have a chance to practice managing themselves, managing their time, going out to play and coming back when they're supposed to, um, solving a dispute uh, with their playmates, um, which, which really is a very important way for kids to learn negotiation, compromise, managing their emotions. And play is the work of childhood. So when kids are playing, they're strongly motivated to control themselves, to hold back on shoving, to manage their frustrations. And, you know, if they only get that 40 minutes of recess to do it and they're within reach of a playground monitor, that's not as effective as having some just free time outdoors. So we want to build in our kids opportunity to be, you know, playing on their own or in lightly supervised ways. And yes, maybe falling down and scraping their knees and maybe climbing too high on a tree and falling and breaking an arm. But in fact, they found this fascinating longitudinal study in my book from New Zealand found that kids who had a fall from a height actually had a lower rate of fear of heights as adults. Mm -hmm. The same with, you know, a bad experience with water had no impact on whether they had a phobia of water as an adult and separation from their parents. So we need our kids to have these small setbacks and injuries even to develop that confidence and to not be afraid. So and it sounded like in your book that um, children who were not, who had never had a fall were more likely to fear a fall than those who had had a fall, right? Right, exactly. So, so or, you know, it, it's just really counterintuitive for us as parents to think that, okay, my child is out there playing and, and I feel like my job is to prevent any injury, right? But actually our job is to prevent any serious injury. You know, we don't want them to run into the street in front of a car. Right. We have to grab them back for that. But if they're doing something that's a little bit risky, walking on a balance beam that's a little high off the ground and they might sprain their ankle, we can train them. We can talk to them about how they're going to do it. But they, the best teacher is for them to experience it to mess up, make a mistake, maybe fall. And that will teach them much quicker than us warning them or telling them to be careful. And in fact, all of those warnings are just going to amp up their fear. And that's why we see anxiety as the number one challenge in that study from NIH of kids with, um, you know, kids' mental and behavioral health. Anxiety was the biggest one. And nearly a third of kids have an anxiety diagnosis. So they need more chances to take a risk and get hurt and learn that they are okay. Yes. So letting kids, when they're young, um, have this unstructured playtime and letting them fall, letting them make mistakes, letting them learn is building this resilience in them that exactly. they see that even when I'm scared, it's okay. 
And even when I fall down, you know, mom, I can go in the house and get mom. (laughs) Basically, mom's not standing right there all the time to catch me every time I fall. Right. I mean, my daughter was eight and I realized that she'd never been alone. She had never been alone, even in the house for like 10 minutes while I ran to the store. And of course, that would mean that if she is ever alone, she feels scared. And we need our kids to have those safe experiences that feel scary to them, whether it's walking to the neighborhood store. And of course, we're going to teach them how to cross safely and how to look both ways. But, you know, we need to do the training and then have some faith that they can do it on their own. And when they are challenged by the real life things they're trying to do, they're not going to get into trouble because they're going to be just grappling with, okay, how do I build this um, fort that I want to build in the backyard? Or how do I cook, um, um, you know, mix up a batch of muffins that I want to make for my snack? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. That's great. And then um, what is the second reason why children have less emotional regulation today? So the second reason is one that impacts all of us, which is the growth of media, social media, and technology, which is now just ever present. So we're, we're able to be always connected. And that um, in research studies has been correlated with anxiety, depression, attention problems, narcissism, um, a lot of these things that go into uh, challenges with self-regulation. And the one thing I advise all parents to do is have a very firm bedtime for devices for your kids and for yourself. So that mm. after, you know, 7.30 or 8.30 or 9.30 at night, depending on how your, old your kids are, they they plug in their devices in a place where they aren't going to sneak out in the middle of the night and get it. And then they have some wind down time and they learn what a wind down routine is, how they get ready for bed, and they can sleep without their mind being so busy from having just come off of a screen. And I know this is hard for some families that have sort of a a bedtime show as part of their routine, but truly the hour before bed should be screen free. And and there's so much research that shows that it it leads to better, healthier sleep. Um, Even if our kids fall asleep, they may not be having the same level of sleep if they've just come off the screen. And sleep is just such a foundation for mental and behavioral health. And kids are, a lot of kids are sleep deprived now. So it all ties in together. I love that you're addressing kind of the teen or preteen years here. And and honestly, maybe even younger now with the society we're living in. To me, I'm like, oh, phone use and stuff. That's not till they're older. But that's really not. I mean, my son, who's seven, um, yeah. tells me now, I want a phone. All the kids on the bus have a phone. And I'm like, yeah. what is this world that we're living in? <laughs> I know. And the thing with those younger kids in third and fourth and fifth grade, if they have their own phone, I'm sorry, Rachel, but they are watching porn because now even kids as as young as nine and 10 have Mm. access to it, it pops up. So even if they're not seeking it out um, and then once they get exposed to it, of course they're curious. And so it means that we need to have a lot of those conversations younger. Yes. About respect for ourselves and others. And yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually had another question that ties back to the, to your first takeaway about giving kids unstructured time, letting them play outdoors without you being right there. There was a passage in your book where you talked about how after you learned this research, you really cut back on your daughter's activities and you just gave them more time to be outside. And you, de- when you described it, it sounded so lovely. You're like, you know, I let them, I let them roam sometimes for hours. They were playing kickball and they were, it sounded like my childhood, you know, which yeah. is, but my thought when I read that is, what what if I don't know about the kids they're playing with or the families that, so they're out with the neighborhood kids. And my exact thought was, what if one of the neighborhood kids has a phone 
and exposes them to pornography. So what do you, I feel like moms feel like we know we want to give them unstructured time and let them play and, and be with other kids. And, but how do we, what, what's your advice on that with also the fear of them being exposed to things that aren't aligned with our values as a family? Yeah. Yes. So, uh, oh, that's such a great uh, question. I'm glad you brought it up because it's certainly a very common uh, and real uh, fear. So we have conversations with our kids. We And I feel like the conversation around media and technology is not the talk, the way that like the sex talk is the talk. It's a conversation over the entire course of their growing up that I'm going to have at different levels, depending on where they are developmentally. So we started talking about appropriate and inappropriate things on screens from the first time they started, you know, really being able to navigate um, screens themselves. And, um, you know, it's age appropriate, but um, I mean, it certainly happened. And I actually have two daughters and a son. So, um, you know, and my son had this experience of, um, you know, a peer um, having something be like, you want to see this? And he, he, we because we had had these conversations, he said, oh, I have to go and came and told me, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we have to have faith in our kids that, they know our values. They know we want the best for them. We know they know we want to keep them healthy. And, and at a certain point, they're going to be able to protect themselves. And it's the same with if they're exposed to something on a screen as if they're crossing a street or talking to strangers. Like we want them to be able to talk to the stranger who's a helper, who will get them out of a tough situation, but avoid the stranger who's suspicious or trying to hurt them, even if that person may be someone that they know. And, and all these things are just require much more training, talking, preparing our kids in a calm way where we are not guided by fear, but we know and believe in our children that they can learn and that they can take their share of responsibility for keeping themselves safe. Mm. And I found in that context, you mentioned of like your kids going out and then, you know, encountering neighbors who are not doing the, don't have the same values. We also try to really get to know our community. So we did have a neighbor who had unlimited screens. And so when I kicked the kids out of the house and said, go play, sometimes they found their way to his house and they were playing Xbox and watching TV. And I found that over a year or two, as they, that friendship developed, the kids actually then started migrating back outside and his parents started imposing stricter limits on him. Hmm. So it's not as hard and fast as it may seem. And I think we all have to be a little bit flexible for different families doing things differently. Mm. Um, and I do find that once my kids were spending more time outdoors or going from door to door saying, can so-and-so play, other families in our neighborhood started scheduling their kids less. Or like on a day off school, the kids would come and try to find my kids because they didn't have this assumption, oh, we're all going to be inside on our iPads. They they knew that there was some opportunity for outdoor play. Mm, I love that. And I feel like that leads really well into your third takeaway as well. What's the third reason that our society, our culture is different than previous generations? So this is where I think it's so hard for us as parents, because of course you want your child to achieve, but this focus on childhood as achievement performance as your value, it lies in your grades and your activities and your, you know, which college you get into, as we just saw from Operation Varsity Blues, like the lengths to which parents are willing to go, mm. some parents, um, that we have just gone too far as a society and wanting our kids to perform and be this sort of this perfect package or, or resume and, and not really thinking about as much um, our kids' growth in terms of character, contribution to their community, which 
Um, there's so much research that shows that the deep psychological health comes from knowing that you belong and that you, you know, where you can make a difference. And if our kids come home and they're too busy with homework and extracurriculars to put their own plate in the dishwasher and they've got a parent kind of doing it for them, that that just doesn't teach them, first of all, the values that they'll need to really do well in life, which is that everybody works, right? But it also gives them the sense that how I do on this test is so crucial that my mom is now my maid, right? Mm -hmm. And then that puts so much pressure on them. And that's what also amps up the anxiety. Yes. Whereas, you know, if I, in our family, we have a rule that, that my kids are now 12, 15 and, and um, old, much older. So she doesn't even want me to say her age, <laughs> but, um, but um, they, the little ones know that, you know, they're in middle school and high school and bedtime is 930. So if they don't finish their homework by 930, they're the ones who have to explain to their teacher why. Hmm. And that gives them a really good um, kind of spark to get it all done faster instead of dawdling or multitasking or all the things that kids do. So we need to be strong enough to say, I'm not going to bend what's healthy for you so that you get that A. I'm going to help you figure out how to achieve within healthy limits of mm -hmm. getting enough sleep, of having family time, of doing your chores and contributing to your family and your neighborhood. Um, and, and that gives, I think my kids are really proud that they can cook a meal and they, you know, help out our neighbors with watching the little kids in the neighborhood or helping them with yard work. And, and that gives them a sense of um, contribution that actually, I think it's much better for mental health than the feeling that I'm the star on the soccer team, because no matter how great you are at soccer, there is always going to be someone who's better. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's not, you know, that's not as, as uh, fundamental a sense of identity as, you know, what you contribute in your home. Right. Yeah. And I really loved the emphasis in your book on um, meaning, giving kids opportunities to make meaningful contributions. And how can they do that if they're always gone at an activity and being tutored to get the A plus and the, right. but having them work alongside you in your home and giving them meaningful work to do is going to build their self-esteem so much more, like you said, than being the star on the swim team. Um, right. And so, you know, obviously we want our kids to develop their talents, but it's got to be within reason, especially to allow for them to have the unstructured play and not just play, play is learning for children. Yeah. Yes. So the unstructured learning time that you talked about in your first takeaway. Yes. I love that way of putting it. And think about the jobs of the future. They're going to be creative, collaborative, innovative jobs that require people who can just tinker and experiment and be on their own and and not people who are just following some script or rules that another person set out for them. Right. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. This is just part one of our discussion. Um, next week, we're going to go a little bit further. As I looked at the title of your book, um, The Good News About Bad Behavior, Why Kids Are Less Disciplined Than Ever, and What to Do About It. I really felt like this first podcast could address that first bit, why kids are less disciplined. And then um, this next episode we will do will be the second part of your title, which is what to do about it. And I feel like we did we did touch on that in this episode, just about pushing against cultural norms. But in the next episode, we'll be diving more into actual parenting, um, the way you discipline your children can teach them self-regulation. And so I'm looking forward to that for next week. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure talking to you. 
I'm so grateful to Catherine Lewis for coming on the show. One thing that I didn't get a chance to talk to her about in this interview that I wanted to talk to her about was the sense of mom guilt that some of us might feel when we learn this information. Catherine mentioned several times in the book that the more she dove into the research about children's development and how it's negatively affected by these common cultural trends of our time, the more guilty she felt because she herself had been raising her kids that way. And she wished that she'd found the research much earlier in their lives. But she goes on to explain that it's never too late to change the culture in your family and to tweak what you do every day so that it better supports your kids' mental and emotional health. And that's what she's done in her home. Even though her kids are a little bit older, it's never too late. I know I'm certainly going to be doing things a little differently with my kids this summer after reading this book based on the three takeaways that Catherine described. First, I'm going to give my kids a lot more unstructured playtime, particularly outside, and I'm going to allow them opportunities to take risks and be independent, even if I'm a little nervous about it. <laughs> Second, I'm going to limit their screen time. My kids don't have phones yet, obviously, and that is what Catherine and I focused on in the interview. But there was also a lot of interesting research in her book about the effect that too much TV has on young brains. And I am going to keep that in mind this summer. Now, I do want to say here that I am not anti-television, and I actually think that it is a sanity-saving tool for moms, a blessing from heaven, when used carefully and deliberately. But it's so important not to overdo it, and I'm not going to let TV become our default this summer. And third, I'm going to focus on my children's contributions to the family and others, not on their achievements and activities. I'm going to try to give them meaningful opportunities to work alongside me and to serve others so they can develop a deeper sense of self and purpose in this world beyond just their activities and the things that they do for fun. I'm very hopeful that these three shifts will help my kids continue to develop the self-regulation that they need, which hopefully will help their behavior and their self-control improve as well, right? I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you for caring enough about your families to want to learn and change and grow. And I hope that you have a great week with your family. I'm Stacy Toth. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne. And we'd like to invite you to come listen to our podcast, The Whole View. Each week, we follow the science for an in-depth answer to a listener-requested topic related to health and wellness. But we're not your typical health show. We're talking emotional and physical, looking at dozens of scientific studies to support our answers. You might be surprised what the science can tell us. When we share practical tips and embarrassing personal stories, we make sure no one is left thinking perfection is the goal. In fact, this one time at band camp... Uh uh, not now, Stacy. Oh, right. Sorry. I was about to get on a soapbox again. The whole view is exactly that. A comprehensive and holistic look at important topics that likely resonate with you. We also take a body positive approach. And instead of engaging in diet culture, we focus on what the actual medical research says are the healthiest choices in terms of diet, lifestyle, and non-toxic living. And we're not afraid to bust myths that are trending in health conscious communities. Join us to laugh and learn and just feel like you're hanging out with your two nerdiest besties. Check out the Whole View podcast wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode.